But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast, the show where I apologize for inconsistent content and poor audio quality. Um, we're back again. I keep saying we're back. I suppose you can just expect this from me moving forward. I think I'm actually going to start to move into more of a season approach and and build up content and topics and themes and things and actually you know try to get more of a regular schedule going. But everything's going well here at ECU. Um, projects are going well. Taking up you know <laughs> probably naively more time than I thought they would. But uh, everything's going great. The the creatine trial's up and running. We've got the gut trial up and running. Um, so just managing all those different projects. And um, today's show is really cool because I've actually got my my boss or my boss's boss's boss, Rob Newton, on the show. Um, chatting about all things exercise oncology. And what's really cool about this, uh, a lot of people who are kind of in this earlier stage would have been like me where we got into the field from reading some of the earlier papers in exercise oncology and being inspired by those or you know even reading the the early guidelines from acsm and essa and it's just really cool to chat to someone who has actually been through the evolution of the field as opposed to just reading it and giving a perspective on how things have evolved so that's pretty much what i've been talking about rob today with rob today and in, in you know everything and everything of the history of the field also how he built um the team here at ecu and in, in the exercise medicine research institute some of the growing pains he experiences experienced as he was moving forward and just kind of some some tips for us you know kind of <laughs> younger folk uh trying to move through the field and and uh, make an impact so we've got another you know really cool set of episodes i keep dangling a carrot in front of your <laughs> respective faces but uh, I've got Carla Prado coming up soon talking about cancer cachexia. Um, I just recorded a show with Ev Parr talking about um, body composition and obesity. And we've got a, a lot of really cool people lined up to chat. So we do have more content coming. I apologize, as usual, for the inconsistency. Um, but other than that, if you're enjoying the winter in Australia, I hope you're staying cold. Hopefully you're somewhere else in the world and enjoying a bit of summer. Um, hopefully I'll chat to you soon and uh, enjoy the show. All right, so I guess we'll start with a, a congratulations. You finally made it to the big time, the internationally renowned Reach podcast. Yes, I have. I'm yeah. sure it's a... My career has uh, picked up dramatically. <laughs> I'm sure it's an honor for you to be here. <laughs> it is, absolutely. So for the very few people who won't know who you are, give us a quick background into um, who you are, what your background is, what you're up to, and all that good stuff. Okay, so name's Rob Newton. I'm the Associate Dean for Medical and Exercise Sciences at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Western Australia. My background is uh, long and varied. Uh, it's uh, predominantly started in human movement studies, exercise sports science, University of Queensland. But 
I have always had a foot in several different camps. So whilst predominantly it's been in physiology, mainly in physiology, um, subsequent exercise, environmental physiology, I've also had a very strong interest in uh, biomechanics uh, and also computing. So I've been computer programming for 40 years. Um, <laughs> you know, programming at times with computers didn't have screens, they were <laughs> just boxes. Um, and, uh, but my, my main interest now, of course, is moving into exercise medicine, in particular application in uh, cancer management. So you were one of the main drivers of bringing some of the principles of sport physiology into clinical realms. Talk a little bit about that and how, how you got into this world and how you, you viewed the application of those principles. So most of my university education and professional career has been in high-performance sport. So all the, physio you know, the majority of the physiology that I learned, uh, biomechanics, uh, functional anatomy and structure and everything, was in healthy humans and then taking that and applying it to athletes, a whole different species. And, you know, I, I enjoyed that work. Uh, you know, I got the opportunity to have, you know, have some fantastic experiences working with NBA teams, NFL teams, U.S. Ski and Snowboard, that was a really cool gig, you know, spending some time there with um, Dr. Andrew Walsh and, and, you know, working with some of the best skiers on the planet and, and snowboard athletes. So, you know, I had a really strong background in working with very high-level athletes and also warfighters as well, so I had some experience working with the, the U.S. military in particular. But it was interesting um, because I was at Penn State University at the time and I was uh, I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship with uh, Professor William Kramer, who I was extremely fortunate that he took me on, uh, didn't really know me. Um, I reached out to him, uh, and uh, interesting that I asked um, several key people, and I said, look, um, you know, I, I want to go work in the US and do my postdoc, who should I work with? And they said, well, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm, I'm interested in high-performance sport, in particular um, strength and power development. I'm really interested in the explosive sports more so than the endurance sports. And they said, oh, okay, well you need to go and see either um, Mike Stone um, or William Kramer uh, if you if you had to get a get mentoring. And um, I was very fortunate that I had the opportunity, I was going to an NSCA conference and I asked Dr. Kramer if I could meet with him and he didn't know me at all. He never heard of me, never seen me. And uh, he, he invited me up to his hotel room to meet his family. And uh, uh, Bill, being Bill, he said, yep, whenever you're ready, when do you want to come? I said, next year. Uh, and he said, done. And, and we shook on it. And then in 1994, I went and spent 12 months at Penn State University. And I learned more in that 12 months than I learned in the previous 10 years Jesus. of spending time in the Center for um, Sports Medicine at Penn State, working with Dr. Kramer and, and, and his team. But coming back to your question is, you know, why did I then leverage um, you know, that experience in uh, elite athletes, particularly strength and power athletes? But how did I leverage that into exercise medicine? Well, uh, I was working with um, the Penn State volleyball team, which is one of the top NCAA teams uh, in Division One, and uh, exceptional athletes. And I was running a training study, and we're, we're using this very specialised ballistic 
training, which back then was, was novel. Yeah. You know, was, yeah. Was, back then, strength training was somewhat novel. You're so old, everything was novel. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, but, I don't, but you just said earlier, I don't look old. You don't look old. <laughs> physiologically, yeah. Physiologically. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm pushing it back. And uh, so working with these athletes, um, and we were looking at the... Uh, how you can make them more explosive and, and how you might train them very, very specifically with ballistic resistance training. And uh, this particular night, I had, it was a Saturday night and I had to go and train an athlete and um, my wife had cooked a lovely meal. We'd opened a bottle of wine and um, you know, had a glass of wine and uh, nice meal and I said, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry, I've got to go out for a couple of hours. I've got to train an athlete. And she said, oh, no. She said, it's snowing and can't you, you know, uh, put it off and I said no no the, the, I, t- I told the athlete I'd meet them at train and uh, so off I went there a little car that we had and um, I went to over to the campus and I waited and the athlete didn't turn up and I uh, telephoned him it was Saturday night you know yeah and um, thought it was a bit crazy to schedule it but he wanted he said no I can train on Saturday night so I went home and of course by this stage my wife had consumed the rest <laughs> of the, the wine bottle <laughs> And she said, how'd it go? And I said, oh, the athlete didn't turn up. So anyhow, she said, why don't we, I don't know why you do this research, you know, why don't you do something meaningful? You know, why don't you put your talents into something that's going to change the world? You're working with these athletes, so they don't care, etc." Oh, okay, thanks, honey. But <laughs> it was interesting because it got me thinking about, well, you know, could I, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, I think that the study of elite athletes as a, as a, as a model is very, very important. We learn a lot. Um, but then I thought, well, can I actually take that and apply it to other um, populations, some would say might be a little bit more needy. Mm. And uh, the, so uh, I went back into the lab uh, the following uh, Monday and I talked with Dr. Kramer and I said, look, you know, I wouldn't mind doing some work uh, in looking at older people and applying some of our same things. So we actually designed a study up looking at doing explosive uh, ballistic training with old men, uh, which is a bit unique. Because back this is 1994, I mean, yeah. uh, we were only just starting to recommend weight training for older people. And uh, I wanted to do uh, weighted jump squats um, with them. And um, so we did, we got it through ethics, um, and we ran a very, very nice study looking at uh, using uh, ballistic type power training jump squats with these men. But uh, with the success of that, I then started to think about, well, you know, this, this is just one sort of concept or model of uh, specificity of training and how you might apply it to address the decline in power that occurs with ageing, because power tends to decline faster than, than, than strength, mm. certainly faster than uh, aerobic capacity. So I uh, started to look at other populations, and um, during that time, I uh, came back to Australia with my wife, and uh, my father developed prostate cancer, and he had his prostate removed, he then went and had radiation therapy for six weeks. And then he came uh, back home and uh, he had this overwhelming fatigue. And the oncologist said um, uh, to him, you, you're cured. You know, you no longer have prostate cancer. He said, oh, but I'm really tired, you know. And he said, oh, that's just normal from the radiation therapy. He said, you know. And what should I do? He said, just rest. And so my dad just rested. He would just sit in the front of the house in the sun every day. Um, trying to get over this fatigue, trying to recover from it. And, you know, I saw him, you know, get smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker and he'd move less and less. And I could see him decline. And I 
said, oh, this isn't right. I said, Dad, come on, let's do some walking, we'll do some weights or something. He said, no, no, the oncologist told me I need to rest. And every fibre of my being as a, as a sports scientist said, this is not right, this is wrong. And uh, subsequently, two years later, he died of a stroke because being sedentary, of course, cardiovascular yeah. disease quickly ramped up. And uh, that's, that's why I said, well, hang on, you know, can I turn my attention to cancer? And uh, that's when I got the opportunity of a professorial chair at Edith Cowan University. Uh, in my proposal, when I actually uh, had to interview for the position, I said, I want to pursue exercise medicine specifically for, for cancer. And so that was 16 years ago um, that we've you know, continued to build the group and to pursue uh, exercise uh, oncology research. I got into the field having read, you know, the the guidelines back in 09 and 10 with ESSA and um, ACSM, but you lot experienced the the essentially the field being born and probably a lot of the resistance, specifically around resistance exercise, um, from maybe patients, oncologists. So talk a little bit about maybe the difficulties in initially trying to get things up off the ground and um, anything you faced in terms of resistance. When we first started, uh, the landscape, particularly among oncologists, was that probably at least 50% of them, and I've got no empirical evidence to back up the proportion, <laughs> but just, you know, in meeting with them at conferences, but also in the hospitals and, and etc., cetera, uh, you'd have roughly about a half that would actually, that actually believe that exercise was bad, mm. that it was contraindicated. And that if their cancer patients exercised, it would actually exacerbate the disease or that it would uh, negatively impact treatment intent. About 50% of them would say, oh, look, if you want to exercise, if you want to, that's fine. I mean, it won't help, but it won't hurt. You know, and that was about the, the sort of ratio. So we, we had a lot of uh, pushback when we originally tried to implement trials. And the, our initial trials, even back then, I mean, this was combination training, but it was high-intensity resistance training and aerobic training. And at the time, we certainly weren't the pioneers in the field. There was there's some many very good researchers um, um, that, you know, Winningham was one of the early mm. um, researchers. She did some fantastic work. Um, that you know had, had started to introduce exercise, but the, the type of exercise that they were in general using was, you know, very modest, very conservative, um, relatively, I would say, is low fidelity in terms mm. of the impact on the physiological systems. Uh, but we we wanted to implement, you know, actual uh, training interventions, which we thought would have a considerable shift uh, in the in the uh, patient. And so there's a lot of resistance because people said, "Oh no, look." I'm quite okay with my patient doing exercise, but it needs to be gentle exercise. Mm -hmm. And uh, we said, yeah, but if they do gentle exercise, they're not going to get any benefit. They'll get some nice social benefits, and you know, probably quality of life will go up a little bit, mm -hmm. and um, you know, just because they're out, you know, mixing with other people and things. But we're trying to shift physiology quite markedly. In particular, we want to produce considerable changes in cardiorespiratory capacity and neuromuscular function. We want to shift them. And um, so, yeah, we got a, a lot of pushback and um, a lot of pushback, you know, from not so much the patients, um, but their carers mm. and yeah. their loved ones, because uh, we'd say, oh, well, we want to bring in, 
your husband who's got prostate cancer and we're going to put them through a heavy resistance training program. And the partner would say, oh, no, I don't want them to do it. Or their children would say, oh, um, you know, my father's not going to be in your exercise trial. And I said, well, but he's, he's, he's volunteered and he's, he seems very keen to do it. No, no, we don't want him to do that. <laughs> I said, can I ask why? Oh, we don't want him to get hurt. And we don't, you know, we don't want him to, he's got cancer. You know he's got cancer. <laughs> we know he's got cancer. That was a criteria to get in the study. <laughs> um, and so there was still that belief that uh, exercise might uh, actually exacerbate the cancer. In particular, there was a fear that it would drive metastasis, that by exercising, increasing blood flow, uh, the damage that occurs to muscle, etc., how that might influence the fact that exercise, you know, produces considerable changes in the immune system, for example, there was fear that that would make the cancer worse. And uh, so we had that, con you know, that, that pushback which we had to overcome. And at the time, there was no uh, evidence to the yeah. contrary. So it was very difficult to say, oh, no, that won't occur. I speak about that a lot because it's easy for me to come here to ECU and we've got an institute of 20-plus staff dedicated to this research. We've got a world-renowned reputation and we've got centres and clinics throughout the city and networks with clinicians. So in, if I was to start the study now, it, it's relatively easy. I've got the body of evidence, I've got the reputation, we've got the resources. Whereas you would have been pretty much going through the dark in this without the evidence, without the support. So how challenging was it for you to look forward and identify pretend, you know, the most impactful type of research? How did you grow out from, I want to do this one study to, to build an either count as an institute or the Emory as an institute? I think seeing my dad and the process that he went through, I knew intuitively from all my training that the rest strategy had to be rejected mm. and that, was, that had to be done quickly because these patients were, were dying. Probably the key, and, and you know, probably to anyone who's looking to actually move into this field even now, is the, the key is having some really sharp clinicians on board. Now we had two. Um, one was Professor Nigel Spry and the other one was Professor David Joseph. They were both radiation oncologists, uh, very well established, um, national if not international reputations for their radiology, um, sorry, their uh, radiotherapy practice, but also they were strong researchers uh, as well. Not in exercise, but they'd done a lot of research around radiation therapy. And they were both converts. Uh, they could see that a lot of their patients weren't doing well on the rest strategy. They said there has to be a better way. And I was introduced to, uh, interestingly, when I first moved to ECU, uh, I was working in the US, I was in Indiana, you know, working... Um, middle of nowhere in Indiana. Middle of nowhere, yeah, Muncie, Indiana. <laughs> but in arguably one of the best exercise science programs uh, in, in North America, uh, you know, the Human Performance Laboratory was downstairs, started by David Kostel, uh, very famous, um, and then I ran the biomechanics lab upstairs. We moved back to Australia for family reasons. My, my mum was getting on in age. My dad had already passed away. And our daughter was preparing to go to school. And so I was motivated to move back to Australia. And when I got offered a professorial chair, which is only a handful <laughs> in the whole country, I said, okay, I'll take it. And we came to Perth sight unseen. I'd never been to Perth. Mm. Um, I had to ring up one of my friends. And I, I said, have uh, you ever been to Perth? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what's it like? <laughs> he said, oh, it's great. 
So I realised at that time that this was a, a probably a negative career move. You know, you're moving from uh, the US, a hotbed for research. Uh, we we're at a university with a, you know, although it was a, a smaller school, it wasn't a, you know, an Ivy League school by any means. In exercise and sports science, it had a strong research reputation. And we were, we were, you know, we, we had a large graduate uh, cohort. Uh, we were had some good funding and some uh, some orthopedic research that we we're doing at the time was funded by the state for many millions of dollars. And I thought, look, this is a family move. Uh, I've got to do it. But my research career is going to take you know a bit of a dive. Mm. But I got to Perth and found out that there's a, a just a, a niche here in terms of health and medical research. There's a lot of really good people, including Nobel laureate mm. uh, people, uh, doing their, their research here. Uh, there's a very good collaboration amongst the various universities, uh, the hospitals as well. We've got some excellent hospitals and there's good collaborations. But the key was that when I arrived, the Associate Dean for Research in the school that I moved into, uh, she was a researcher in cancer and palliative care. And she was actually funded by the Cancer Council of the state. And she said, oh, what do you, you, know, what do you want to do? What's your, what's your area of research? And I said, look, I have been working a lot in elite and performance, but I've been more and more moving into exercise medicine research, in particular in cancer. She said, oh, that's my area of interest <laughs> as well. I'm, in, I'm, I'm a researcher in cancer and palliative care. So uh, she said, I need to introduce you to a few people. Uh, so she had a lot of contacts in Perth, and she took me around, introduced me uh, to key people, and one of those was Professor Nigel Spry. And so I met him down at the hospital, and uh, we talked, and I said, look, I'm, I'm really interested in applying exercise and medicine uh, at that stage, uh, more so to improve function and quality of life in the patients. Um, he was a, a mad keen mountain biker, uh, really liked his exercise, and he went, yes, <laughs> you know, I, I think that exercise would be really good for my patients. And so we had him on board from day one. He would talk to his colleagues and his, some of his colleagues would say, Nigel, you have to be out of mind. You're going to actually exercise these, these cancer patients. And, you know, I would say to him, you know, you know are you worried about safety? You know, are they, you know, we're going to have some serious adverse events here. And he said... Rob, these, these patients are dying. You know, we're, we're burning them with radiation therapy and really toxic drugs. How much harm do you think exercise <laughs> can do <laughs> compared to that? And he was all gung-ho, and he would refer patients into our trials. Our early trials were in prostate cancer because of my, mm. you know, personal family interest. And, you know, we grew that, that series of programs and trials, and it was those... Uh, I can't expre express more strongly how critical it is to have those strong clinical links that are uh, really committed to your program of research. Now, Nigel and David and many of the other oncologists that we work with, they're co-authors on our papers, they're involved in the design of the study. Mm. It's very rare that, particularly now, for our team to actually come up with a research question. Mm. It's the clinicians and the patients that tend to come up with the research question. And so that's also important in, in growing the program is you're answering the questions that the people that matter actually want to mm. answer. Not me as a scientist, what I think is important, because that's, yeah. not, that, that's not what's important. So that was, a, that was a contributing factor as well. 
So we've talked a lot about the evolution of, of Emory, the Exercise Medicine Research Institute here, but what about more broadly about the field of exercise oncology? Um, it's rare you get someone so old who could talk about the history. So <laughs> what have you seen from the, those initial Winningham studies through till now? How have you seen the evolution or the, or the field evolve? I think the evolution of the field is problematic in the terms that it's most investigations are in your two key cancers of mm. prostate and breast. That's a problem. And we've got, you know, growing amount of evidence. I think the, the evolution of it has been principally in the survival data where you have uh, the, basically the epidemiological work, uh, which has been, you know, important. And it, it, is, it has been sort of the, the work that's first made people realise that, you know, there could be the promise of improved survival. But, of course, in an epidemiological study, mm. it's not causality. It could just be association. It could be reverse causality. The relationship between physical activity and exercise. So I've seen that evolve now to a point where there's now three trials, randomised control trials being run internationally, which are actually uh, have a progression-free or overall survival as the outcome. So that's probably been one of the, the major changes that I've seen from uh, looking at physical activity patterns amongst cancer survivors and then looking at you know, their mortality. But now we're, we're actually looking for causality to mm. draw that link. The other key area, of course, is, has always been in, in terms of quality of life. Mm. And, you know, for a cancer patient and for most oncologists, quality of life is number one. Um, and so there was the early work where, you know, we, we see that uh, exercise intervention in the main produces a quite large improvement in quality of life. Bit of a no-brainer. I mean, what you... Any, they exercise, you expect <laughs> their quality of life to get worse. Um, so I think that was a bit obvious, but we had to do it. Yeah. Because, you know, the early work was around uh, improving quality of life and function uh, and also showing safety and feasibility. Of course, we had to do that because, you know, 15 years ago, people were still of the concern that if you exercise cancer patients, you'd, you'd actually have a serious adverse events. Uh, so that's progressed as well to the point now where the, the research, you know, researching into different cancer populations and to see whether it's safe and feasible is not very meaningful. It's not going to add. Uh, re researching to see if exercise improves quality of life, it's not meaningful. Um, it's, it's just not a research question anymore. The work now, of course, which our group and many others is now investigating, is trying to understand the mechanisms mm. of how exercise actually influences tumour biology. How does exercise enhance radiation therapy, chemotherapy? That's where I think it's, it's now evolved that that point you know it's it's we've got some examples uh, obviously we run exercise clinics for cancer patients across Perth uh, and we have been involved in implementation of programs uh, in other cancer centers uh, around the world uh, we have been involved in implementation of uh, programs which are not based within a, a cancer facility or a hospital or an exercise clinic in terms of telehealth so mm. Uh, we've run several telehealth programs when we're currently, well, for the last five years, we've been involved with a, a telehealth program funded by Movember called True North. And that's been rolled out across Australia and now Europe and North America. Uh, so we are a lot involved a lot in that translation, but that's a, an area which is highly problematic. I, I'm not seeing a lot of traction. I'm not mm. seeing a lot of improvement and, and uh, development in that space uh, because... 
there's so many hurdles to implementation of quality exercise medicine mm. more broadly in the cancer population outside of a metropolitan area or outside of a uh, an actual exercise trial. That's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, particularly as you're looking at the, the scalability of a program, looking to move into rural spaces, looking to move into places where you don't have, I suppose, content experts that understand how to modify exercises, it, it ultimately ends up in a quote-unquote watered-down program that may only result in quality of life, but you're not getting any tangible physiological changes. It is, and it's, uh, it, it becomes a real issue around equity because you've got such a disparate mm. uh, gap between uh, those who will have access to a high-quality exercise medicine program and uh, you know, those who will have to settle for something. There's, it, it's so much a cultural problem and a, and a government and funding issue as well. Uh, personnel alone, uh, you know, we're implementing the November Interval Gap 4. One of our greatest hurdles is to be able to find personnel with experience working with patients mm. with advanced cancer. Uh, we can't, it's very difficult for us to find qualified per personnel that can actually implement the trial mm. and be able to work with that. So that's in a research setting where it's fully funded by Movember. Uh, so for the vast majority of these patients uh, in, different, uh, in different countries, there's not the personnel available. Then there's not the facilities. Uh, you know, the, a lot of people see the holy grail of being able to come up with a home-based program. We know that uh, recommending a walking program or even recommending any type of home-based program will be suboptimal. And it's, it's, it's impossible to produce the same perturbation to homeostasis and drive the level of specific adaptations in the systems required to fight the cancer. Extremely difficult to do it at home. For the same reason you cannot train an elite athlete uh, in their own house, you know, yeah. doing it in their own backyard. You just can't do it. Yeah. Um, you know, they have to come to a specialised facility under close supervision. And so that's the challenge, is how do you roll out more broadly. Don't get me wrong, any amount of exercise mm. will be of some benefit to the patient. But you know, if you had advanced metastatic prostate cancer and mortality was staring in your face, and the offering was, well, you, know, you could do a suboptimal program at home, um, which will make you feel better, it's probably not gonna help you get through this, mm. uh, you're, gonna, you're gonna be pretty upset. And you're gonna say, well, hang on, what's the best, what, you know, what, what, uh, current evidence, what gives me the best chance of survival? It's a bit like, um, you know, currently you can't receive radiation therapy at home. Uh, it wasn't so long ago you couldn't get chemo at home. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, particularly in Australia, we have chemotherapy at home. And, you know, for a lot of patients, they can actually re receive their chemo at home. Uh, for exercise, we're not at that point yet. Yeah. So you deliver a lot of education to health professionals. Um, you know, we've developed a master's course and things like that. What do you... View as some of the, the the things that people are apprehensive about when they hear my client has cancer. Or I want to get into the the world of cancer. Do you view that there's barriers from the health professional perspective in, in what they are comfortable with delivering, implementing, or even um, the intensity of exercise? Yeah, there's uh, there is still a recognition amongst allied health professionals that. The exercise and physical activity is beneficial for the patient, but that the risk-reward ratio might be too high 
There is a still a belief that cancer patients are vulnerable, which they are, but the uh, I think there is a disconnect between the reality of what a cancer patient can actually do when they're working at a relative level um, versus what society and the health and medical profession actually believes that their body will tolerate and what they're capable of doing. And uh, you know we're we're now moving into a space where we're running high-intensity intermittent aerobic program. We're implementing periodized high-intensity resistance training programs. We're performing one repetition maximum strength tests uh, on, on patients with advanced metastatic cancers uh, who have been through surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and now they're on the advanced um, you know, super therapies and immunotherapies, etc. And if you look at the, the research trials, there is negligible reports of serious adverse mm. events, um, but you know there's still that fear that, uh, that that the patient is you know going to have a serious adverse event. So people err on the side of safety. You know, duty of care is obviously important, but you have to weigh it up with the fact that uh, for some of these patients they're going to die, and the you know with a targeted exercise program you may. On all evidence currently, you are likely to be able to uh, improve their quality of life and maintain their function and uh, reduce the decline uh, in body composition, uh, reduce treatment side effects. That's pretty well established. And I think in the, in, within the next five to ten years, we'll have uh, irrefutable evidence that with the correct intervention, you'll be able to extend life. Mm. Uh, but extending life will not come from a low fidelity exercise program. It will have to come from a very targeted exercise program that creates serious shifts in the endocrine, metabolic, muscular, neural systems. So 16 years deep, is there anything that you've you know, changed your perspective or focus in, in relation to, to this field as a whole and, and what you view as important now or, or how has your understanding changed day one to year 16? Oh, probably one of the biggest changes is that I went into this um, naively thinking that uh, cancer patients would respond in a similar way to any sedentary individual. So I've done you know, a number of studies in the past in healthy older adults and everyone gets better. Uh, mm. Everyone improves. Some improve markedly and some improve less so. But if you give a half decent exercise program, everyone will get better. They'll get stronger, faster, better aerobic endurance. What I've learned over the last 16 years is that that doesn't apply in cancer. Uh, there will be some patients who will retain the ability to respond and adapt. There will be others who won't. It's not necessarily the fact that they're declining in, uh, in their body composition and condition due to the disease progression or the treatment. It's more than that. It's that uh, because of their disease and their treatment, some patients have now lost the capacity mm. to adapt. It's probably related to their compromised immune capacity, uh, but we can exercise them and we can have them lifting heavy weights and doing, uh, doing the actual dosage of the prescription. Uh, but what I have learned is that some patients will not be able to respond to that. I think that it's because the programs that we have been giving them are suboptimal. One thing that I have learned over that time is that I think that the interference of 
is considerable in these patients and that we have to be very careful about giving combination mm. exercise programs. And uh, it, uh, we have to be a lot more sophisticated in our exercise prescription. Otherwise, some patients just are not going to respond. So that's a question I get a lot when we talk about the targeted exercise. When we're trying to target to um, impairments related to the disease or the treatment or what we anticipate is going to happen, when you've got the anticipation of, say, uh, cardiotoxicity in certain chemo agents, um, maybe people are going on ADT and the, the risk of muscle loss, how do you develop a program, bearing in mind the inter interference effect, how do you prioritise what you target or how you de design and deliver it? It's, it's interesting because working with so many coaches, uh, you look at their training methodologies in, in strength and conditioning and uh, they'll have their favourite. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, we've, been, we've been guilty of the same thing. You know? uh, I've, you know, I've got a firm believer in resistance training and um, so we've, you know, we've really had a big emphasis uh, on that. So the first thing is you have to let go of your favourites uh, and yeah. you need to prioritise. How do you do that? It, it all comes down to what's going to kill them first or what's, going, what's causing the greatest disability or discomfort. Uh, and that's a, that's a discussion with the patient as much as it is an, you know, an analysis there of their current medical status as well because what you think is important uh, may not be important to the patient. So you have to have to balance mm. those out. So once you've prioritised uh, in terms of that, go hell for leather at you know the, the first one or two. Everything else has to go by the wayside because these patients have very little resilience, very little resources. But you know, I'm talking about when they're you know advanced stage. Um, quite often, there's obviously constraints of time. For example, if they're a younger patient, they could still be trying to work. They may have young children. You need to produce, uh, give them an exercise prescription which addresses those key one, two, three priorities uh, in a really timely manner. And so that's, that's why when we wrote back in 2009, the Australian guidelines came out recommending 75 to 150 minutes of aerobic exercise and resistance training sessions per week. At the time, it was, it was novel. Uh, but we totally reject that now mm. because you have to come up with a prescription which is uh, viable for the patient and you know really targets those key key issues on a priority basis. Uh, the analogy I often give to my students is that uh, you know if you bring your car into the mechanic and the engine's about to explode, you don't ask them to change the seat cover. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it'd look nicer and it'd yeah. be more comfortable to sit in, but if the engine explodes. It's basically a glorified lounge, <laughs> lounge, uh, lounge yeah. suite. I suppose alongside that, it's probably worth having a chat about the the papers we publish and are nice and clean and pretty and we talk about the exercise program. When professionals in particular are looking at those and trying to interpret those and, and replicate those, I think we could do a better job of communicating how particularly in the clinic, how flexible you can be with, with adapting different exercise modalities or, or prescriptions, where if you understand the principles that are universal, you can understand how to have individual application of them. Yeah. Whereas I think if people are looking to just copy and paste what we do, you'll, you'll lose a lot of the potential benefit. Oh, exactly. And it comes so much back to the parallels in uh, high-performance sport. Uh, you know, over the... 
I started in 1980 uh, in this in this field, so I said 39 years. Jeez. Um, and I've seen so many fads, you know, mm. come and go in high-performance sport. And, you know, people just adopt the program because it was the program used at the Chicago Bulls or, you know, it's, it's the latest, it's the, you know, the exercise program that, you know, some famous movie star uses or whatever. And fads are fine when you talk about the healthy population. It probably doesn't make too much of a difference. And where does a lot of elite, elite athlete? And so that's why, you know, I've taken that, you know, I can see that same analogy applying in terms of these patient populations. Now, as you well know, in elite sport now, uh, if an athlete is injured, um, say on the weekend they blow a, uh, an ACL, uh, you don't give them the same exercise program the next, you know, on the Monday <laughs> when they come in. The whole program changes. Mm. Um, by the same token, you don't tell them, oh, geez, that's a shame, look, have six weeks off. <laughs> that doesn't happen either. You know, this is a multi-million dollar mm. machine. You know, they're in on the Monday and we just exercise all the bits that aren't broken. I think particularly with cancer, you, uh, as a patient, you have to be very innovative in terms of modifying the program. And uh, there, is no, there is no choice to rest. We, are, we know for a fact that the patient will only decline faster. And so it, it's critical that you tailor the program and that you're innovative and change the exercises to continue to stimulate the muscle. I, I firmly believe that the muscle contra contraction and the systemic factors that are produced from muscle contraction, the changes that muscle contraction induce in terms of metabolic health, um, uh, insulin, um, insulin-like growth factor, the changes that it implements in terms of uh, hormonal endocrine changes, uh, really impact the patient's body composition, but also the tumor biology. So how you activate the muscle, I've even moved away from looking at really functional, because we're always thinking, oh, we've got to, we've got to do nice functional movements because we're maintaining function in the patient. Yes, that's important, but what we're trying to do is drive the medicine in the patient. So how you actually cause that outpouring of uh, cytokines and, and hormones it, it doesn't matter so much so long as you're getting a nice dosage. And so if they can't do, you know, a, a leg press, for example, because of, say, a lumbar um, problem, find another way to activate some big muscles. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't probably really matter so long as you, you do activate, the, you know, large muscle groups. Yeah, it's funny, you know, we, we talk about the whole free weights versus machine weights and, and things like that are important in maybe elite athletes where the signal is smaller. Yeah. I think in this population, um, you have two individuals, even within the same cancer subtype, will it respond similarly to two dramatically different exercises. Some will respond really well to a sit to stand, some may require yeah. um, a different stimulus, but it's important to have that flexibility and the, the ability to adapt your protocol to the individual. And I think it's, it's the range is so much greater in a cancer patient because Cancer is a hundred different diseases, uh, and each of them has different characteristics and impacts different systems in different ways. But then you have to overlay the myriad of therapies and surgeries that, that occur with it as well. So even within a given cancer group like um, breast cancer, depending on the therapies that they received, depending on their genetics, their age, their body composition, they're, they're like different species. 
so you cannot have a generic mm. exercise recommendation. It, it has to be targeted towards the individual. And I think the, the, the mindset that people automatically go to is imagining the worst case scenario. They imagine the weakest person on the worst of treatment, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the worst possible scenario where you're right. You see people who are 30 years old, former athletes or a- athletes going through it that are fit and capable. And if you can understand the physiology of the disease, of, of exercise principles and of the treatment um, toxicities, you can modify the exercise to maintain a high level of, of intensity and volume of training. Yes. Yeah. I think though also... Um, I've got, I'm working with a lot of patients because uh, I, I still do clinical work and I still deal one on work one on one with patients. A lot of the patients, not but some of the patients that I have uh, were elite level athletes up until their diagnosis, and they're particularly difficult to manage mm. um, because they have very set views about the type of exercise. Someone who's never exercised before in their life, they just come in and say, oh, well, mm. "What do you want me to do?" Um, and you know, if you have an elite strength athlete, they just want to get back in the gym. They just want to lift weights. But if they have, uh, for example, they've received radiation uh, to the chest, and you know they've got some, you know, cardiac damage, lung damage, etc., uh, then you know I, I need to have a good focus on on really maintaining or improving their cardiorespiratory capacity. Uh, by the same token, I've got a lot of um, uh, endurance athletes. I've got one, a couple of that have been masters level triathletes. And all they want to do is get back on the bike and, and to run. But they're receiving, uh, in one case, a person who's been through a breast cancer uh, experience. And uh, she's got considerable peripheral neuropathy. Now, what I'm looking for there is we're looking at a res- you know, targeted resistance training program, some work on unstable surfaces mm-hmm. to try and get some uh, neural stimulation, and in particular to tr- produce some um, you know, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, whether that will actually help with repair, it hasn't been demonstrated, we don't know, but sometimes you just have to work with the theory, you have to work with the physiology that's known and say, okay, can we apply here? So in working with with, uh, cancer survivors and patients that have been athletes, it sometimes sometimes can be a challenge. Yeah, some of the challenges can also be reeling them in instead of the the reverse and and trying to get people who are untrained. So this, this 16 years of experience, well, you're... 40 however years of experience in the field plus i started when i was three (laughs) (laughs) of course you have pictures of you holding the barbell (laughs) plus your your philosophy um on on training in general has resulted in you um and the brilliant carolyn mcintyre developing this shameless plug masters in exercise oncology course that that we've got here so talk a little bit about how that was developed what is involved in it and and you know what's going on with it so I mentioned before that one of the greatest challenges we have is qualified exercise professionals uh, being available with adequate training, but also the confidence to be able to implement a high-quality exercise program. I mean, anyone can implement a, you know, a, a gentle exercise class. Okay, that's, that's easy. Uh, but it's, it's not. It'd be like giving someone a tenth of the chemotherapy dose that they need. Okay, it might help a little bit, but it's probably not, it's, it's far from optimal. So on the basis of that, we're, we're running these trials, we're producing these research papers, and the thing that kept on coming back to us is that we would get uh, patients contact us from all across Australia, around the world for that matter, would e- uh, email us. 
and uh, say, look, I've read your, your paper, I have uh, X cancer, um, and uh, what should I do? And I said, well, you need to get into a quality exercise program, and uh, well, I, I don't have anyone here. And so the first, uh, and, then, and then we started to have a lot of exercise physiologists, uh, physiotherapists, nurses reach out to us and say, look, we've read your work. And uh, look, we, we really believe that exercise would be beneficial for our patients and we'd like to implement it, but we have no idea what to do. We don't even know how to start. So at, first off, we put together a professional development course, just a short six modules uh, that we put out. And we've had about uh, 800 uh, people from all sorts of professions, mainly exercise physiology and physiotherapists have gone through that course. Uh, but then we need to go to the next level because as the science grew and we have so much knowledge base now, you can't you can't provide it in a, you know in a, in a few week course. And so this year we implemented a series of postgraduate qualifications, graduate certificate, graduate diploma, and then a full masters specifically in exercise oncology. And uh, in that course, we you know we go right into the pathology. We have a, an oncologist come in and explain the different therapy agents and why they're used and what the side effects are and how they manage the side effects. Uh, we of course have a, a large exercise assessment and prescription component to those courses as well. Because in the usual training of exercise professionals, physiotherapists, exercise physiologists, they have very little exposure in the oncology setting mm -hmm. because they've got to cover everything else. Yeah. You've got to go through, you have to do cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, etc., metabolic. And uh, you know, Take, for example, in our undergraduate degree, I teach most of the exercise oncology components. It's a one, two-hour lecture and one, mm. two-hour practical. Um, so you can understand why exercise professionals are, you know, don't feel confident to work with these, with these patients. And so that was the impetus. Uh, it was basically people asking and say, look, have you got any more courses? Have you got anything more extensive? I'm still not confident. And so that's why we've launched the, the courses. And the courses are fully online because for the same, the same feedback is these are, inquiries are coming from all around the world. Mm. Most of the people are currently employed, uh, so they don't want to leave their jobs and family and start being a full-time student on campus. <laughs> so uh, they want to learn just in time. And uh, so that's why the flexibility of a totally online course. So you've also uh, positions uh, looking at getting some PhD students in to work on some projects and um, what have you got in, in that space? Well, we're very fortunate at ECU in that we have currently a, a large number of PhD scholarships open and we're filling those at the moment. We have, of course, our Centre of Research Excellence in Prostate Cancer Survivorship and we have a couple of PhD positions there as well. So, yeah, we're actively recruiting at the moment uh, for people to work in uh, research projects around exercise and cancer, not necessarily entirely in prostate cancer. We'd be open to anyone uh, with any interest. Uh, we are moving out a lot more into uh, less studied mm. uh, cancers. There's a, a lot to be done uh, there because, again, we have to come up with exercise prescriptions and trials which are specific to the, uh, the factors which are influencing the particular patient population. Mm. And a lot of that work still needs to be done. So we're really keen to talk to people interested in coming and joining the research team. And yeah, listen, I'll, I'll link all the details to the, to the master's course, to, to your work in the show notes as well. But uh, where can people find you and keep up with you and what you've got going on? Well, the website, 
exercisemedicine.org.au uh, is our main website, so there's always information on there. I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, so it's just uh, Prof Rob Newton on Twitter. And, uh, or, you know, I really enjoy getting emails uh, from people as well, so if you just search for my name, email will pop up, send us a note. Brilliant.